0: And bless our youth worship team this morning again, they did an awesome job today, so thankful for them. Amen. Let's stand if you're not standing already for the reading of God's Word, which is our custom around here. Good morning, Grace Point. Hallelujah. Good to see you this morning. I uh, began a series, this is the third message in this series, we uh, first Sunday we talked about in this series the audacity of grace and then we talked about the second uh, Sunday grace and the concept of sin and today I want to kind of continue on with that and we're just going to call this title a question what is the essence of sin what is the essence of sin the word essence means the intrinsic nature of something so what is the intrinsic nature of sin i said last sunday that you would think that as much preaching that those of us that grew up in church have heard about sin and against sin and to avoid sin and overcome sin and all of that that we would know what sin really is but the church i believe as a whole does not even know what sin is Uh, most of the church looks at sin as something that they physically do A wrong that they do breaking transgressing god's law primarily that that is in itself sin and although that is sin i'm not saying it's not but i'm saying sin is more than that when jesus came he revealed that sin is not simply breaking a rule or even transgressing one of god's laws jesus said it like this in matthew 5 when he was preaching that great sermon on the mount he said you have heard it said of those of old that thou shalt not commit adultery. Most people see sin as something that's forbidden, thou shalt not. And Jesus said that you've heard it said, he's talking about in the old covenant, that thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that if any man even looks at a woman and lusts for her, he said you have committed adultery with her already in your heart. So there Jesus revealed a radical view of what sin is. Sin is not simply something that we must do sin is an attitude a thought isn't that blessing the bible also went on to say in the new testament in james that it said to him that knoweth to do good so you don't even have to do anything to sin just do nothing and that's a sin in other words him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him it is what how many knows that's in the bible say amen So therefore, you don't even have to do anything. You can just sin by doing nothing. We talked a little bit last Sunday out of Romans 14 where Paul said there was a great debate going on in his time about whether they could eat meat sacrificed to idols. One group of Christians said, it's not a big deal because when I pray over and give thanks for my food, then it sanctifies that food. And I can eat meat and I'm not condemned and it's not a sin to me. And then Paul said, but there's weaker Christians who don't eat anything but vegetables and they say they can't do it and if you do it it's a sin and he said that uh, they don't do it and Paul finished that 14th chapter in the last verse by saying this that whatever is not of faith that's sin so he said happy is the man who doesn't condemn the thing that he allows so Paul said there that sin is a very personal thing it can be sin for you and not sin for another brother that's a wild view of sin, isn't it? Because you don't have faith. In other words, if you perceive a thing to be wrong, then it's wrong to you. So don't do it. But don't preach your personal preferences as doctrine. And don't bind and judge your brothers based on what you allow or disallow. Amen? Y'all just let me know when I start preaching. I'm just talking right now, but you just... Amen? So Father, we do thank you that you came to take away the sin of the world. That Jesus is the lamb that took away the sin, not just of those who confessed it, but the sin of the world. That he was the propitiation, the satisfying, appeasing sacrifice for sin once and for all. And for that, we are amazed. And all we can say is thank you, Father. We thank you for your grace that is abundant to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn around and greet somebody near you. Come on. Greet them, welcome them, make them feel welcome, especially if they're visiting us here at Grace Point. Move out of your seat if you have to. Go find somebody to greet. We want you to feel welcome. We want you to feel right at church. You thought I was going to say right at home, didn't you? If I say right at home, you might take your shoes off and do like this and try to change the channel. But we want you to feel right at church. God's church. Amen? So, the Bible talks a lot about sin. No other book in the New Testament mentions it. I mentioned this last Sunday, the word sin, more than the book of Romans. Most Christians, again, think sin is a verb, an action, something they must do. But sin in the Bible, for the most part, is a noun. That's a person, a place, or a thing. And so sin in the Bible is more of a thing, an entity, than it is an action. The action you do is a result of the sin, that is there. The things that we can observe, because you can't really see sin. You can't see sin, uh, but you can see the results of a person who is moving because of sin. In other words, um, in Genesis, I, I mentioned this, I believe, last Sunday, but in the fourth chapter of Genesis, when God confronts Cain, who had murdered Abel, this is the first time in verse 7, that the word sin appears in the Bible. And when it appears there, God himself is using it, and God personifies it. In other words, he makes it a person. And in the King James, it says that, he says, sin lieth at the door. Uh, you can't see that, but that's how, that's how God is verbalizing this. And then he told Cain that he, he in the King James, it says he desires. What's he talking about? He He's talking about sin. He personifies it. He says he desires uh, to rule over you. And then he says, but, but you must rule over him. That's exactly what it says in the original text, that he personifies sin. That's a noun, by the way. And so uh, Jesus, when he taught in Matthew 5, he, he magnified the law. He magnified really what sin was. It was more than just simply breaking some kind of commandment. Or some kind of rule. And so I want to pick up where I left off last Sunday out of 1 John. And I want to tell you, man, this first epistle of John, he makes some outlandish statements uh, in this book, in this epistle. And, uh, and listen, he, he seems to contradict himself in this epistle at times. And if you don't read this properly, uh, you're going to be really, really confused. Now th- listen to some of the statements that John makes in his epistle in 1 John. 1 John 3 and 6, for example, he says, whoever abides in him, talking about Jesus, does not sin. Didn't that, let, let's, just, let's just read it and what it says. It says, if you abide in him, if I ask you how many of you abide in Christ, and then if I ask you how many of you ever sinned since you've abided in Christ, and you'll say, well, that doesn't, make, that's, doesn't bear out in my life. But that's what the Bible says. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him or known him. Y'all quit shouting now. I'm trying to read. Verse 9 of John 3. 1 John 3. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. Have you been born of God? Then you do not sin. And right there you're going, but I do sin. I told you John was schizophrenic, man. He did not know it. I'm just reading the Bible now. Whoever's been born of God does not sin. Why? Because his seed, God's sperm, remains in him. That's what that word seed is. spermazoa. And he cannot sin. It didn't say it's hard to. It said he cannot sin. Why? Because, why can't he, why can't he sin? Because he's been born of God. 1 John 2 and 1, this is where it seems to contradict. Now, he just told us you can't sin if you've been born again, right? Do I have a messed up translation in my Bible, or does it read the same in yours? All right, now listen to what 1 John 2 and 1 says. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. Now, he's telling them not to sin. I thought he just told us we couldn't sin. Now, he's telling us not to sin. And then he says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, John, you've got to make up your mind, dude. You just got through telling us we can't sin. You said we cannot do it. And now, you, now you're admonishing us not to do it. In verse 12 of 1 John chapter 2, he says, I write to you little children, listen to this one, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Notice it doesn't say they're forgiven if you confess them. Notice it doesn't say you're forgiven of them if you ask to be forgiven of them. It just simply says your sins are. If if you already are, then you not they not will be is past. How many of you already are in this building? So you don't have to come into the building 5 minutes from now cuz you are already in the building. So he tells them your sins are forgiven. For his name's sake, not for your crying. Not for your begging, pleading, asking. And then in 1 John 1 and 9, you know I'm saving the best for last. He says, if, seems to be conditional. If we confess our sins. By the way, the word sins here in the original is singular, not plural. And it is a noun. So if you read it as it's written, it cannot mean what most people say it means. Because he's not talking about verb, breaking a rule, doing something. He, he said, if we confess our noun, sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from how much? All unrighteousness. So if you've been cleansed from all unrighteousness, how much unrighteousness does that leave in you? This is not hard math. If you've been cleansed from all unrighteousness, how much unrighteousness do you now have? None. That leaves you righteous then. Is that right? So whenever the subject of sin is ever brought up, especially among Christians that's been raised like most of you and I have in church, most of us have been raised and been taught and preached that we must confess our sins one by one to remain forgiven with God. Is that right? Most of us have been taught, if we've been gr- grown up in church, that we can't even be born again into the kingdom of God unless we first repent and or confess our sins. Is that right? Now, if you go to the average church in America and you say to a Christian, preacher or not, but especially a preacher, what must I do to be saved? He will say, Bow your head. Close your eyes, repeat after me the sinner's prayer. And this is how it's going to start. Father, forgive me of all of my sins. I am a sinner, and I need a Savior, or something like that. How many knows I just told you the truth, and how many heard that before? All right, that's practiced ferociously in the church, evangelical church in the United States of America. I'll just limit it limited, limited to America. Is that right? It's what I said true. That's not in the Bible. Now some of you just had a shocked look on your face. Welcome to Grace Point. We're glad you're here. That is not in the Bible. In the book of Acts, the 16th chapter, when the Philippian jailer asked that same question to the Apostle Paul, what must I do to be saved? Paul did not say, bow your head, close your eyes, say the sinner's prayer. The word sin, listen, is never mentioned out of the mouth of Paul to that man. Why didn't Paul get the guy to confess his sins? If the only way that a person is forgiven of sin is by confessing them, then that man is still lost. But yet Paul told him he was saved. Selah, that's an Old Testament psalm word for Paul's reflect, and meditate on Brother Dale's sermon. <laughs> See how different that is than how the church does it? We've got some things really wrong in the church because we've really gotten away from the Bible. Paul answered, what must I do to be saved? Questioned by the Philippian jailer with this statement. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy household, by the way. Because when one person's living in their light always overcomes darkness. And salt will make a difference. And that was the end of the story. And nothing, word, the word sin wasn't mentioned. And yet a guy got saved. And I think Paul, more than all of us put together, knows how to get a person saved. He wrote most of the New Testament, particularly that about grace. Right? And if that's not enough for you, You go to the book of Romans chapter 10 where the whole chapter is really devoted to how to be born again, saved. And the word sin doesn't appear in the entire chapter. You ever think of that? The word sin does not appear. The word confess does appear in Romans 10, 9 and 10. The word confession comes up. But you know what they're confessing there to get saved? Not their sin. They're confessing the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Isn't that something? The word confess is a Greek word, homo lego. If you're a Greek expert, you know I just mispronounced it, but it doesn't matter. That's the best I can do. (laughs) Homo is made of two words, homo lego or logos. Homo means same kind, same thing. So "homosexual" means two people of the same kind, same, you got it? So homo logos, the word logos means the word of God. God's Word, what God has said. So homologos means to agree or say the same thing that God says. The word confess to the average Christian means cry, use tissues, tell God how sorry you are for your sin. But in the Bible, the word confess means to agree with God. To just simply agree with God. And if you're going to agree with God, you're going to have to agree that God has forgiven the world of sin. You're going to have to agree that God sent His only begotten Son and that He was the Lamb of God that took away the sin now of the world. Not just the sin of the church, not just the sin of Christians that confess them one by one, but the sin of the world. God has provided forgiveness for the world. Listen, forgiveness is not anything that God will do today for you. God is not going to forgive anybody today nor tomorrow. And God did not forgive one person yesterday on planet Earth. Neither will God forgive anybody a week from now. Why? Because God has forgiven the world of sin. And he keeps no record of that transgression. He does not impute it nor impart it to man, he says. Over and over in your New Testament Bible, somebody say... Glory to God, new covenant. That's the Bible. That's not what's taught in most churches. That's not what's taught. That's not what I was taught. We're taught that we're saved by grace and we're kept by confession. And that if somehow we forget to confess one of our sins, because no sin will enter in up there, then in the rapture was to happen, or the Lord come for us, by death or however then we would miss it. Many are taught they can even lose their salvation and they live in this trepidation and fear and anxiety all the time and they're not victorious Christians. They're Christians full of anxiety condemnation and fear and doubt. It is a miserable way to live. I lived it for decades. I not only lived it I preached it because it was preached to me. But I have read the Bible for myself now. And I see that I was lied to. Maybe not intentionally, but ignorantly. God said, Hosea 4, 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. What they don't know. What you don't know is God's not mad with anybody. Not you and not a person that's never on, opened the door of a church. God's not angry with them either. Even the sinners are forgiven, Brother Dale? Absolutely. Ain't they in the world? God forgave the sin of the world. He, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 17 and following, that, he has re- that God was in Christ, reconciling the sin of the world unto himself. God said, you can't do nothing about it. You can't keep my rules. I do it myself. But well, what the law could not do, and the law was weakened by flesh, God did by sending his only begotten son, that whoever would believe upon him would have eternal life. Amen? Amen? Man, this is good news. Who I like preaching better now, Pastor Keith, that I can tell these good news of what Jesus accomplished in his finished work on the cross. And I'll never get tired. I'm going to spend the rest of the days God gives me telling this world how good our Father is and what he has paid for us to redeem us. Now, this world and the sinner's And those who have not been born again, they are forgiven. In other words, God's not angry with them and God's not punishing them. Does that mean sin doesn't matter? Sin matters so much that God died on the cross. How dare you say sin doesn't matter. But him who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Sin really mattered to God so much that he became a man and died on the cross for sin. And God was in Christ, but he reconciled the sin of the world unto himself. And so we're not saying sin doesn't matter. But man, even of lately, I get hit with 1 John 1 and 9 all the time. There is great men that have far larger ministries than I have, and they, their blog is read by more people than my blog is read by. And they ferociously attack this message of God's grace. Within the last two weeks, there's been two different things, you know, and I could even almost send a, I won't even identify. But the brother is sitting here where he sent 1 John 1 and 9 to a pastor friend, another pastor, another state, and said 1 John and 1 and 9 was not written to the Christian. And the pastor sent back a, uh, what you call it, a GIF, the little video, you know, where a guy saying saying, bullcrap, that's bullcrap. And then he forwarded it on to me. <laughs> I still have it on my phone, yeah. And that pastor was just incensed that our brother would suggest that 1 John 1 and 9 is not written to Christians and that Christians, he was, he was affirming that, oh yeah, Christians have to confess their sin. In fact, don't they're lost? And then I would like to quote you the rest of what was said, but I can't, but. There was some cursing involved. <laughs> you don't think a preacher would curse. You don't know. First John 1 and 9, when the subject of sin comes up, is always brought out as a proof text to prove that you have to confess your sin in order to be forgiven. Now, you may want to ask this question. Why is, do they always use 1 John 1 and 9? Listen to me. That's all they got. In the entirety of the New Testament, that is the only verse that remotely seems to say that forgiveness is tied to confession. So it, it is the only verse that will ever be trotted out as proof because it's the only one that anybody has in the entirety of the New Testament Bible. And many will focus their attention on one verse taken out of context. and and stand against many, many numerous verses, 10, 15, 20 verses that say the opposite of that, that you've already been forgiven. Now, we know that this is not, 1 John 1 and 9 is a message about conditional forgiveness. God, you know, they say won't forgive you unless you confess each sin one by one. That's not compatible with the New Testament Bible, and it's surely not compatible with what Jesus did and taught When he dealt with people. In other words, Jesus, did he not forgive people that didn't confess their sins? How about in John 8 when the woman caught in the act of adultery? Did not Jesus forgive the woman? How can you have, he said, neither do I condemn you. How can you have the free gift of no condemnation if you've not been forgiven? So even Jesus didn't verbatim say, thou art forgiven, woman. He said, woman, where are you accused her? She said, I don't have any. He said, neither do I condemn you. Now, he did say go and sin no more, but the power to overcome sin is not because you focus on sin. It's because you focus on God's grace. Grace is what overcomes sin, not you trying harder. And so the free gift of no condemnation is what empowered her to go and sin no more. In the church, we get it backwards. In the church, you know, that I grew up in, we said go and sin no more and we won't condemn you. But as long as you're sinning, we're going to keep condemning but the Bible says, go and, Jesus said, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. You see the difference? So the free gift of no condemnation empowers us to go and sin no more. We've got so many people trying to go and sin no more, and all they're doing is focusing on sin. They're not focusing on the free gift of no condemnation from the Lord Jesus Christ. Another place in Luke, uh, the book of Luke, uh, they lower a man through the, the roof. Remember that? Remember when they tore the roof off while Jesus is preaching? That's pretty dramatic. Most of you remember that in the Bible. Jesus looks at that. That man ain't said a word. That man did not open his mouth. Jesus stops, looks at that man, and this is what he says. Listen. He says, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the man never confessed. So if you have to confess to be forgiven, that man was lost and Jesus was lying. Y'all don't shut me down when I'm preaching like Jesse Duplantis. Jesus, the man didn't say anything, and Jesus said, man, your sins, not will be if you confess them, are forgiven, in case you don't know who I'm talking about, you. And you're not supposed to end the sentence with you. <laughs> By the way, grammatically, you're not supposed to end it with you. you got to say you what? But Jesus said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And you know what the, what the, the Pharisees did that was standing around and heard it? Same thing a lot of people do when they listen to this podcast. <gasps> they were offended. And they said, who can forgive sins but God only? And Jesus knew their thoughts said, which is easier? To say, man, thy sins are forgiven thee, but to say, or to say to the man, take up thy bed and walk. He said, so that you will have faith that the Son of Man can forgive sins on earth. He said, man, take up your bed and walk. And the man stood up at that moment. Now let me ask you this, which is easier to say, for me to say to a person, sir, your sins are forgiven, or to say to a person lying on a cot that can't walk and paralyzed, say, take up your cot and walk? Which would be easier for Brother Dale? It's not hard, y'all. I'm not trying to trick you. You already know the answer, right? It's a lot easier for me as a preacher. I'd like rather say to somebody, thy sins are forgiven thee, than to walk up to a paralyzed person, a quadriplegic, and say, take up thy bed and walk. Jesus said, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. But he said, if I demonstrate the harder. If I demonstrate to you what's harder, then that should shut your mouth on what's the easier part. So Jesus said, take up your bed and walk," And he's like, now y'all shit up. (laughs) He dropped the mic moment. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) I'm out of here. You know what I'm saying? I mean. Jesus forgave sin. He don't need your permission to forgive you. God don't need your permission to forgive you. God don't need you to confess. See what, what is it that listen, what is it that causes God to forgive sin? In other words, what legal right on what grounds does the Father forgive sin? On what grounds does the Father have legal right? To forgive sin. The Bible said without the shedding of blood, there is no, he uses the word remission there, same thing, forgiveness. So without blood shed, there is no forgiveness. Jesus shed his blood when? 2,000 years ago on the cross. Are we expecting him to come back and shed it again? That means that there can't be any future forgiveness then. That means that God has to forgive a future sin. If you didn't forgive a future sin, by the way, we're all lost in here because all our sins were future when Jesus died on the cross. So you have to believe in future forgiveness of sin through the blood of Jesus or you couldn't even get saved. And then people write me all the time, how dare you say people's future sins are forgiven? Because that's what the Bible says. It ain't what Dale said. Dale didn't write the Bible. Well, why, why did you say that, they, that they're I didn't say it. The Bible said it. Tater head. The Bible said it. Dale didn't say it. Stop putting... In my, why did you say, I didn't say it. I just wrote it. I just blogged it. I just preached it. But I didn't say it. Don't get mad at me. I didn't say it. The Bible said it. I'm just repeating and agreeing with God. I'm saying God's word's true. So on what grounds does God forgive? Bloodshed. So God's not moved by your tears... Your sorriness, your contrite heart, your brokenness, your, none of that makes God forgive because He's already forgiven. Forgiveness is not something God will do, forgiveness is something God has done. Listen, it is not a question of will God forgive me, it's a question of will you receive that forgiveness that's already been provided. God has provided the forgiveness for the world. The world has not enjoyed the benefit of that forgiveness. They have not received that forgiveness. For as many as received him, to them he gave them the power to be sons of God. So you have to receive the forgiveness. But you're receiving it, it's not God giving it. Now let me ask you a question. How do you know, for those of you that say you have to ask for forgiveness to be forgiven, you have to confess your sin in order to be cleansed, forgiven. How do you know that he forgave you? I'm waiting. So you as a Christian have sinned. And by the way, you rate that sin on your inside heart chart. Bad sin, not so bad, horrendous, horrible, almost God can't forgive this one. So how do you know when you pray and you ask the Father to forgive you of that sin? How do you really know that you're forgiven? How do you know? Does he audibly say, Dell, I forgive you? No, he didn't. You ain't heard God audibly come back and say, I forgive you, son. No. So how do you know? And let me ask you this question while you're meditating on that one. How many of us, I said us, how many of us did, did believe that or do believe that, confess that sin or asked the Father to forgive us and then turned around and asked him to forgive us of that same sin more than one time? How many of ever in here asked God to forgive you of the same sin twice? And I don't mean because you've done it twice. I mean because you've done it once, but you asked him twice to forgive you. Or how many of you have asked the Father to forgive you of a Five times or ten times. How many of you a week from later from doing it, you're still talking to him about it? But you know why you're doing that? And do you, why would you ever ask God the Father to forgive you of the same offense twice? Because you didn't believe he did the first time. And do you know why you didn't believe it? Because you don't have any way of knowing when you're forgiven or not. Because you think forgiveness is something that the Father doles out instead of something that you receive. See, that way that puts the burden on God rather than putting it on where it should be upon us receiving. See, in Acts 19, when the apostle Paul came upon those apostles of Apollos, he didn't say, he asked them a question. He said, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? He didn't say, has God given you the Holy Ghost yet? See, the problem wasn't God giving the Holy Spirit. The problem was them receiving the Holy Spirit. Some of you are trying to get God to give you the Holy Spirit. He's already given the Holy Spirit. Some of you are trying to get God to heal you, to like you, to love you, to bless you, to help you. He's already done all that. It's just up to you to receive it. Grace has provided it. The problem is not on the transmitter I preached to you a few weeks ago. It's on the receiving end. Have you received since you believed? We didn't know nothing about this. Paul said, I'm going to something to you. God's already given it. All you need to do is receive it. And the Bible said they received the Holy Spirit. See, some people don't receive it because they don't know nothing about it. They think there's something that God's going to do if they cry hard enough, pray long enough, petition, mourn, weep, sorrow. No, God's already forgiven you. See, do you see the point of that? Why'd you ask him five times? Why'd you ask him 10 times? And see, that's the whole strategy of the devil. The strategy is, do you see it, that if Satan can keep us asking and asking and asking for forgiveness, for us never really absolutely being sure that we have been forgiven, then we are one defeated, ineffective, condemned believer. Is that right? But yet, when you get around preachers that mix the law and grace message together, which most do, I used to. They will insist that First John 1 and 9 is a verse that you must obey and you must confess each and every sin in order to remain forgiven. They say you need to do this, and you've got to restore your relationship, that you're out of relationship with the Lord now because you've sinned. And, uh, and a lot of times I, I hear these guys say this. They say, well, I mean, they'll say, what, you know, like if you're married, they'll say, well, if you sin against your wife I mean, or, or your husband, don't you confess to them that you did wrong? And, of course, the answer to that is sure. I mean, if you want a good marriage, if you want a relationship to be, you know, you're going to have to admit and acknowledge that you've done sin. But I've been pastoring for a long, long time. And I can't tell you how many counseling sessions I've had where that's not a good, because God's not us. Okay, for the first thing. But that's not a good example because how many times have I sat in counseling with married couples who told one another that I forgive you of this offense And then when they get in a heated discussion, they turn around bring it up and use it as ammo against them. That happened more time than not. Don't give me that example. It's not a good example. God doesn't remember your sins. God doesn't, he's not going to bring it up to you 10 years later. Remember back when you, I mean, God's not going to do that. God's not going to do that. And so, if you look in 1 John chapter 1, let's just, um if y'all can i i hope you can on the fly here but just put those uh put those verses up and let's just start in chapter one verse one of first john one and let's just see the context because listen to me john's really talking to four different groups of people he's talking to, to 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 me it's very clear it's unbelievers and i'll deal with that even if you don't want to believe that in a moment but but in first john chapter one he's dealing with people that that are not christians And then in chapter 2, he starts talking to Christians, my little children. But then when he gets to Christians, he actually divides them into three groups. He says little children, young men, and then fathers. Okay? Because you don't start out. You, I mean, you grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace of God. But look, let's look in verse 1, 1 John 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. They're talking about Jesus there. He said, the life was manifested. We've seen it. We bear witness and we declare to you. Everybody say you. you. All right, so you're going to see that he's talking to the you group. You. So who am I talking to? You. But then I can also say We, that would be whoever would be up here on the platform. So if there's three people up here with me, it would be we, and then I'm talking to you. So you see two groups, we, you. That's what he's going to do right here. He says, to you, we declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and manifested to us. Now he's talking to these people about eternal life. If they already have eternal life, and you will have it if you're born again, then why is he talking to them about it? That would be like trying to get people saved again. Okay, verse 3. That which we have seen, heard, we declare to you. Everybody say you. Come on, play the game with me here. We declare to you that you also, also, because they don't, may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus. So what he's saying, you don't have fellowship with the Father and with Jesus and with us. Because you ain't a Christian. And I want you to be. Verse 4, and these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Because you don't have no joy right now because you ain't got Jesus. you telling me he's writing to believers and they got Jesus, but yet he tells them they ain't got no joy? No. He said, this is the message we have heard from him, and we declare it to you. And God is light, and in him no darkness at all. And if we, everybody say we. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus. Christ, his son, cleanses us from how much? All All sin. And if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Now, see, we're we're going to see the verse in context. Now, listen, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So everybody attacks me, they go after me with 1 John 1 and 9, and they go after you. But that, that 1 John 1 and 9 is like the meat between two buns. And the two buns is verse 8 and verse 10. And he's talking to sin deniers. These people, they actually were Gnostics. This was a very prominent teaching in the New Testament time of the church. But he uh, is saying to people who denied that sin even existed. They were sin deniers. They, look, look at what it said. If we say that we have no sin, I have never met anybody that said they, they have no sin. They've never had a sin. They've never done a sin. sin they, they, no sin. No sin means no sin. Do you have a felony on your record? No. That means you've never had a felony. Apply for the job, they won't know if you had a felony. No. That means what? You've never had any relationship with a felony warrant on you. Right? So if these people say we have no sin, then they're saying sin has never entered into this right here. Are you getting it? They're not saying that we don't have any sin right now. They're saying sin doesn't exist in our life. We don't believe in sin. Sin is just a figment of y'all Christians' imaginations. We have no sin. And if you say we have no sin, then you're deceived. And who you're deceiving is yourself. Look, and the truth not in us. Verse 10 says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Who? Who's, who do we make a liar? God, Jesus. And his word's not in us. How do we make God a liar by saying sin doesn't exist? Because him who knew no sin became. That's the reason God came and sent his son is to deliver us from the bondage and the power of sin. So if you say sin doesn't exist, then Jesus didn't have to come. And if Jesus didn't need to come, then the whole gospel is a lie. Jesus I mean it's the whole thing falls apart. Do you understand? Now you go over to chapter 2, verse 1, and then he changes and he says, my little children. And he starts talking to Christians. And he he writes to them and says, you know, sin not. So let me say this. The preachers that mix law and grace will insist that this verse says you've got to confess it. But it's just simply not true. And um, there's a difference. Are you saying, Brother Dale, that, that it's wrong? I always get this one. Are you saying, Brother Dell, it's wrong for me to confess my sin to God? Absolutely not. I didn't say that. Never said that. He's your father. Anything that bothers you, you can talk to him about. You can spend all day talking to him if you want to about your sin. But, and I do, listen, I do believe in healthy confession and unhealthy confession of sin. In other words, I confess sin to God. I mean, when I do, when I do a sin and I do wrong, I don't just act like I didn't do it. But now, instead of me begging God to forgive me like I used to, now I confess my sin not to get forgiven, but because I am forgiven. And I just talked to my father about it, and I don't want to do that again, and I don't want to get caught up in that. And I don't want to do that. Paul said in Romans 6, that whatever you yield yourself to, to that thing, you're a slave to, Christian or not Christian. So I'm just, I just want to yield to that, whatever it is. But I'm not talking to God now because, like, He's mad at me, angry with me, I'm out of fellowship, none of that mess no more. No, no, I don't waste any time on that. It's all lies. And so the difference between, I believe, healthy and unhealthy confession is confessing sins is good as long as you do it from a heart of faith. And you're not doing it to be forgiven, you're doing it because you are forgiven. But if you're confessing your sin because you think you have to do that in order to be forgiven... Listen, don't get mad, but that only reflects your ignorance regarding the finished work of Jesus on the cross for you. And instead of making things better, your confessing actually will promote self-trust and it will frustrate grace in your life. Uh, A lot of people get really upset and they go, well, he said that he's writing to Christians and non-Christians in chapter one. I don't believe that. And uh, so sometimes I've had to, you know, okay, so let's just say that I'm wrong. Let's just say that I got First John 1 and 9 wrong, and I'm not sure he's writing to unbelievers. Okay, I'll just give you that then. There you go. There's a freebie. But I can still show you that you're wrong. Nowhere in First John 1 and 9 does it say ask anything. The word ask doesn't appear. He's not telling you to ask, and that's how you're forgiven. Uh, you can assume confessing is asking, but that's not what it says. Now, a better question is this. Instead, Sometimes people say, well, I don't, you know, he said, who, who is John addressing? And I believe that's an appropriate view. But if you don't, then let's go this road. A better question than to ask who is John addressing, then, is to ask whether Jesus cleanses us from all sin or just some sin, then. Let's ask that. Does Jesus cleanse from all sin or just some sin? And by some sin, I mean just the sins that we confess. Now I got you right where I want you. Okay, so you have you either he either it does what the verse says or it doesn't. Does he cleanse us from all unrighteousness or, or some unrighteousness? And if he and John here says he cleanses us from all unrighteousness, so if he cleanses us from all unrighteousness, that means he's forgiven us of all sin. I don't care who he's addressing, same ending, same result. The blood of Jesus is what what that was shed is what purifies man from sin. It's not your confessing. And so then he turns around in chapter 2, verse 12, I told you, he says, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven you. In other words, your sins have been forgiven. Now listen to me. Jesus doesn't just deal with the sin of your past, but he, he deals with all sin. And I told you that. But let me tell you this. Confessing your sins will not empower you to overcome sin. Grace is what empowers you to overcome sin. I'm ending with this. Listen, First John chapter 2, verse 1, in that verse, didn't he say this? He said, if anyone sins. Now, he said, I don't want you to sin. But then he said, but if anyone sins, we have a what? An advocate is what? Somebody who pleads your case. A lawyer is the greatest example for us in America that we can understand. So a lawyer speaks for you in the courthouse. You don't speak for yourself. A lawyer speaks for you. He petitions the court. He approaches the bench. He talks for you, right? That's why you hire an attorney. They, they, they speak for you. So so, the, per, the preacher that mixes law and grace will say this. Now listen to me. They'll say this. This is what they teach. When you sin, you better start talking to God about it. You better keep a short uh, ledger of your sin. You better keep a short account. You ever heard of that? Keep a short account with God. You better not let your account build up too much sin because then you'll forget all you've done and you won't be able to confess them. So, as soon as you do it, you better get talking. Once you sin, you better open your mouth and start talking to God. That's wrong advice. Once you sin, keep your mouth closed and let Jesus do the talking. When you sin, Jesus does the talking. And you don't even believe that because you'd have been a lot more happier about that statement. Why, how does Jesus do I just told you he's your advocate. What do you think an advocate does? Sit there? It's like, attorney, talk to the judge. I mean, it'd be like an attorney just sitting there and never opening his mouth for you in the court. What good is that? If you got to do the talking. No, just sit there and shut up. The advocate will speak on your behalf. So when you sin, Jesus talks. What, what, what does Jesus talk You remember in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, it says, in Hebrews 12, 24, it says, to Jesus, listen, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, listen, that speaks, blood talks, blood speaks, blood has a voice, but it says, this blood speaks better things than that of Abel. I've come full circle. Abel was murdered by his brother Cain. And, when, and that is, and, and because of, of Abel's blood crying out to God the Father, that's, what, that's why God came. God came to earth to talk to Cain about the murder of Abel, not because he saw the murder, I'm not saying he didn't see it, but because Abel's blood cried out to God. What do you think Abel's blood was crying out for? Re- vengeance, restitution, payback, punishment, condemnation. And so that blood cried out and God answered that cry of that blood and said, I've come for your, blood, your brother's blood cries out to me from the earth. He said, your, you spilled his blood and it soaked into the earth and yet that blood has a voice that cries into the heavens. Man, if you could get this right here. But he said the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross and went into that ground it speaks but it speaks better things than that of Abel. But it's not crying for vengeance and condemnation and punishment but it's crying for forgiveness and mercy and grace from the Father. That's the blood of Jesus. That's what that blood cries out. That blood cries out for that. Because when you sin, listen the accuser of the Brethren, not the accuser of the sinners, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren, but when you sin, the accuser will accuse you, but don't listen to him. Don't listen to his condemning accusations against you, but listen when you sin, just be real quiet and listen to the voice of your advocate, speaking on your behalf, drawing attention away from your sin and onto his sacrifice.. Whew. Man, that's good news. Now, when you sin, there are two questions you can ask. I'm going to advise you to ask one of these and ignore the other one. But here, these are only two questions you can ask when you sin. This is it. So when you sin, I'm not, I'm not saying when you sin. I mean, I'm not saying if you sin. I'm saying when you sin. Because my, my, you know, please don't take this wrong, but you're going to sin. And my concern is not that you'll never sin. My concern is what will you believe when you do sin? So when you sin, This is the wrong question to ask. When you sin, listen, what can I do to fix this? What can I do? What prayer can I pray? What tears can I shed? What can I do to fix what I just did? That's the wrong question. That's the same question that Adam asked in the garden as he reached for fig leaves. To fix his nakedness. He tried to fix it. He tried to be his own savior. He tried to save himself. The better question is, not what can I do to fix this when you sin, but when you sin to ask this question, what has Jesus done to fix this? What has Jesus done to fix this? And John plainly tells us what he has done. He has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. Is that wonderful news? Now, listen, some of you are just bound and determined. you want to confess something, and I'm going to help you, Okay? because you, confe- you want to confess. So here, if you want to confess something, then confess this. By the precious, sinless, spotless blood of Jesus, I have been cleansed from all unrighteousness. And I now agree with God the Father that I am the righteousness of God in his Son, Christ Jesus. And I make that my confession before God. And when you say it, not because Brother Dale says to say it, but because you believe it because it is the truth. Then you will rise out of the miry clay of self-pity and condemnation and doubt and fear. And you will stand on the solid rock which is his son and the price paid on the cross. And you will be victorious and you will have confidence to approach the throne room of grace boldly and you'll know God hears your prayers. You'll know God loves you. You'll know that he'll never forsake, you'll you never leave. You won't live in that whole miry mess that so many believers have lived in. Do you receive the word of the Lord today? Would you give God praise as you stand on your feet? Elders, ministry team, would you come? It's real early, we ain't even got 12 yet, hallelujah. But we love you here at Grace Point and we mean that sincerely and we want to pray with you if you want prayer. We don't want to detain you, we honor you, we, we respect your time. But if you want prayer for any reason, you can come down front and it will be our honor to pray with you. You don't ever have to go away wishing someone had took time to pray with you personally about something. The greatest thing that can happen to anybody in the building is you being an unbeliever and you believe what I preach today because it's the truth, it's the gospel and you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I love a man that'll just come on to the altar and not even wait for an altar call. But if you want whatever you want from the Lord today, we're here to agree with you, to pray with you, and primarily we're here just to agree with God. We're here to confess what God confesses over you, and we're to declare to you the salvation of Jesus Christ. God bless all these people coming today. Come on, would you put your hand, just encourage them as they come. God bless you, young ladies. Amen. So, Grace Point, we love you. We love you. Next uh, weekend's going to be a great weekend here. And, uh, but we love you. God bless all these young people. Thank God for all these teenagers and these young people. Amen. Now, I'm going to need some more help down here. Pastor Keith, would you just would you help me? Ben, come and help us. Amen. Mike, would you and Kim come and help us, our home group pastors, leaders, come help us pray, make sure everybody's covered. Come on, community group leaders, Pastor Adam and Lisa's coming. Man, we love these young people. We're so thankful for what God's doing. Hey, and when I dismiss you, that's not saying get out the building. (laughs) You don't have to leave, but if you want to leave, then we dismiss you, and you're free to go, we're going to hang around and pray. If you want prayer, even as these have come, if you'll come, we'll meet with you. We'll pray with you about anything, okay? God bless you. We love you, Grace Point. God bless you. You're dismissed.